0: So I'm always trying to figure out, how can I do new stuff? So I just started making one-minute videos, a new one every single week, and you can check them out on Instagram and on Facebook, or signing up and just getting them sent to you by being on the mailing list. Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, There's a lot that I want to talk about today, and just trying to zero in on, on just our relationship with God, because I really do believe that this is our most essential relationship, and and anything that we can do to sort of like maximize it, uh, will literally change our entire lives. And one of the things that, that hit me at a certain point in my life, and I, I just want to just bring this up, um, again, is that you get to decide what world you want to live in. Um, if you want to live in a world that's, uh, just a, a happy place, even, even a happy place where where there's suffering and, and, and very confusing things happening and you don't know why, but nonetheless, it's a happy place. You, you get to choose that. And if you want to live in a, a, a place that's basically, um, you know, where you're being hunted by an angry God who's just waiting for you to make the slightest error, um, that's your choice also. You, you get to choose which, which world you want to live in. And, and and the the deeper truth is that there there is an objective reality there is an ultimate truth beyond what we decide the truth is um, and and that ultimate truth torah says Judaism says is a really positive happy place with a happy ending so so what's what's meaningful to me about that is that a lot of people When I I didn't grow up, um, you know, uh, observant, you know, in the sort of the classic Jewish way, it sort of uh, arrived at it a little bit later, even though I had a very strong Jewish upbringing. And I noticed that, like at Harvard, a a lot of my sort of like peers, you know, sort of um, had this very sort of sophisticated air about them. And that part of being, quote unquote, sophisticated was being cynical. And that you had to sort of like uh, take this approach that, you know, everything was, you know, almost like a a nihilistic approach where it's just like, you know, what's the use of anything? And it it was sort of like a kind of like a cool way of being and a cool way of going through life. But what I realized um, kind of as I sort of went deeper is that if there is a happy ending, if that actually is the ultimate reality and and you know you see a lot of darkness around you that to be optimistic to to have a happy take on life um which is in sync with the ultimate reality actually requires a greater sophistication. in other words, you you have to actually be a deeper person to be optimistic so much so much of the world sort of equates um optimism and happiness with um lack of intellect and superficiality. And what's so ironic about it is that it, it, the opposite is, is the case. And, you know, Marx um, famously said that religion was the opiate of the masses, meaning to say that, um, you know, the, the masses who were not intellectual, you know, sort of like uh, clung to these uh, far-flung hopes as their opium, as their their sort of like uh, drug to to kind of get through life, um, and that ultimately that that it was a crutch is what he was saying, but but the thing is is that if it's true, and if it feels good, like if it's true, why shouldn't it feel good? In other words, there's not a a, uh, a contradiction between something feeling good and something being a crutch. If something feels good, why shouldn't the truth feel good? In other words, if you orient yourself in a way where you say, you know something, I see darkness, but I'm going to see past the darkness to the goodness, why shouldn't that feel good? Um people around you will say well you're just kind of clinging to that to to feel good but like I said if it's the truth it should feel good um again but you you have to be like a little bit deeper to 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 fend off um, the cynics around you because ultimately they they have a shallower take and there's a a long story, and it's one of my favorite, favorite old time stories. Rip Shlomo tells it. He said that while he was at Lakewood, he went on a long walk with a, a Belzer, a Belzer Chassid. And believe it or not, this Belzer Chassid—this um, was after World War II—was was the chief rabbi of Tehran. Which is like, if you if you know like anything about Jewish sociology, those two things just don't go together at all. But anyway, he told a long story about Rebbe Elimelech of Luzhensk. And the end of the story, we'll skip the story, but the end of the story is Rebbe Elimelech says to his chassidim. he says, he said, you saw the bad time coming. He said, but what I saw was the good time after the bad time. And that's, that's what I'm getting at, really. There are bad times. And it's, it's you're living in unreality if you deny them. We have to recognize them. There are bad times. But the Torah widens and expands our consciousness to give us the ability to see the good times after the bad times. And that's that's really that's really the ultimate. That's the ultimate. So, with that in mind, I want to tell you a story. I I think this is a funny story. This happened to me. Um, let me just give you uh just give you a quick vocabulary read, just in case you don't know some of the lingo here. So, what is, what is a segula? So, a segula is kind of like a mystical. Way of accessing a blessing. So, for instance, let's say a person's not married and they want to get married. So, there's certain segulas, almost like you know, kind of like shortcuts, Shortcut holy shortcuts. Let's just say to arriving at it. Or let's say a person doesn't have a job and they want to get a job. Some parnosa. So, they're segulas in order to to be blessed with with uh, with a livelihood. Um, one that uh, Reb Shlomo told me um, is that if Motzei Shabbos after Shabbos, if you wash for bread, right? That's that's a segula, the the benching, that you're opening up the week with um, just thanking God for everything, just f- and and creating an opportunity in order to thank God for everything. See, that's the difference between they say like regular people and and rebbe's, right? That a regular person wants an apple. And then they make a blessing so that they can eat the apple. But a Rebbe, right, just wants to say a blessing. But he can't just say a blessing. So he, he'll he eat an apple just so that he can be able to say a blessing. Right? So, so the idea is that you're opening up the week and you're just creating an opportunity where you can do the Birkat Hamazon, the whole long benching to thank God for everything under the sun. And of course, you know, you... You have to eat some bread in order to say the blessing. So that's a segula for pranosa. By the way, it's, a, it's also a segula for um, an easy childbirth. Uh, and Reb Shlomo explained the logic behind that. Why would, um, why would uh, doing a malava malka, right? That's, that goes part and part with uh, washing for bread. Why would doing uh, a malava malka make childbirth easier? And Reb Shlomo uh, said an amazing explanation for this. He said that when a baby is inside its mother's womb, it's always Shabbos inside the mother's womb. Right? And so the baby doesn't want to come out because when the baby comes out, it's going to be coming out in the world where it's not Shabbos all the time. So if a mother makes Malava Malka, what you're doing is when you make a Malava Malka, you're extending Shabbos past Shabbos. Okay, it's not it's not the laws of Shabbos, in other words, you can use electricity and, and all the rest. It's not halakhically Shabbos, but you're keeping the you're keeping the the spirituality and the holiness of Shabbos alive even when it's not Shabbos. So Reb Shlomo explained the reason why it's a blessing for an easy childbirth is that the baby says, ah this mother of mine is making it Shabbos even when it's not Shabbos, this is a person I can be born to. Right? So, so okay, so now you know what a Segula is. <laughs> By the way, I have to tell you my favorite Segula story before I tell you what I want to tell you. So I heard this from Rabbi Beryl Wine. There was a uh, there was a a, a Rav um, and he lived in Slonim. He wasn't the Slonimer Rebbe, the famous Slonimer Rebbe, but he lived in the area of Slonim, and he was not a Chassid. But the people in his community were Chassidim, and he was a tremendous Talmud Hakham. He was a great Torah scholar, and his he, the people in the community always wanted to make him into their Rebbe, but he didn't. He didn't go for it. You know, he wasn't a Chassid. And they were always asking him for segulas because Rebis are like, you know, masters of understanding, you know, different sagulas, And he never had any segulas for them. So, but they always asked him. Now, one of the things that made him um, so special, this Rav, was that before he ate a meal, he would say all 613 mitzvahs. Can you imagine? Like he would go through all Tariyag mitzvahs before he ate. So, finally, someone was asking him, begging him for a segula, and he said, listen, I only know one segula. So it's like, what is it? What is it? He says, if you've got a bowl of hot soup, and you say all 613 mitzvahs, it's a segula to turn it into a bowl of cold soup. (laughs) So... Anyway, now let me tell you my, my Segula story. So this happened to me a couple of weeks ago. Um, if you're on uh, these Jewish mailing lists, uh, I'm sure you've got this uh, at least once or perhaps multiple times, which was we we read in Parshas Beshalach just a few weeks ago um, about the, the man falling, the manna from heaven, the bread from heaven, right? And it's a, you know, it's a very... Uh, Widespread segula that um, you know there the there's seven aliyahs for every every portion of the week, which means that the 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 weekly Torah portion reading can be divided up into um, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, right? Each because there's seven and there's seven days of the week. Each day has a each day has a a, a portion that corresponds to it. So um, when we read parshas B'Shalach, the portion in that that corresponds to the day of the week is Tuesday, okay? And that has a section about the manna falling from heaven. So the over Rebbe, years ago, approximately 200 um, years ago, maybe a little bit more, um, he said that if you read about the mana on the Tuesday of that week, right, that that is a segula, that's going to be this Special mystical blessing for Parnosa, for livelihood. And it's very widespread. It's very widespread. And um, anyway, if you do it properly, it takes a while to do, especially since my Hebrew isn't so good. So I read slowly. So I really have to block out some time in order to be able to do this uh, this properly. And so now here's here's the story. <laughs> So that morning, that, that, that Tuesday morning, I was in shul, and I was davening Shmona Esrei. And you know, you get up to the Shma Kolenu part of Shmona Esrei, and during that part you can say a, a personal prayer to God. And so during my personal prayer to God that, that morning, I said, God, please bless me that I should be able to say the Sagula for Parnosa, right? And then all of a sudden, I realized what I just said to God, and I broke out laughing, because because God, you are asking God to help you say the segula. God is the one who's granting all these things. So, so just in case you don't get it yet, let me let me. I, I have a, a I came up with a, a an analogy, a, a visual to describe what this process was. Imagine. You are at the, 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 the door of the palace of the king, right? And you knock on the door. And the king himself opens up the, the door for you, right? And the door is wide open. You're standing before the king. And you, you say to the king, can you please open up the window on the side of the palace so that I can crawl through the window into the palace? Meanwhile, you're talking to the king and the door is wide open. So so being in the middle of Shimonesra and, and talking to God and asking God that he should give you the time to say the sagula for Parnosa, it's, it's a little bit it's a little bit um, it's a little bit off, let's just say. But what's the lesson? What's the lesson? The lesson is that life is incredibly complicated. It's really extremely complicated. On the one hand, on the other hand, life is actually incredibly simple. You know why? Because all there is is God in you, right? When you when you really boil it down, all that exists is God in you. And all you have to do, because we have a direct connection with God, all you have to do is just speak to God. Talk to God. Talk to God. See, you know, Rabbi Noah Weinberg, uh, Shalom. he was the president and founder of Avesha Torah. Apparently, one of the things he would say to his students a, lo- a-, a lot, like, was um know what you know. Know what you know. So what does that mean, know what you know? See, I'll give you an example. A lot of times I like years ago I would be sitting, you know, in shul say, and there would be a speaker, and the speaker would come up and he would start to say something that I've heard him say before. And my mind would just shut down. I'd be like, I heard I heard this right. And then I started to ask myself the following question. If he stopped talking right now, could you walk up there and finish the thought? <laughs> and almost every single time the answer was no. And so I said to myself, you didn't hear him the first time. What do you mean you're, you don't want to hear it again? You, you, you didn't hear it the first time. And so then I'd start listening. And, and, and so that's, that, that's what it means. Know what you know. There, there are a lot of things where people will tell you something and part of you just shuts down. Like your heart closes. You don't want to, because you know it. You know it. You don't want to hear it again. You know it. But do you know how many things are in the category of quote unquote, I know it that you absolutely don't know? <laughs> I would say. The majority of things we quote unquote know we don't know in the slightest, because we didn't learn them to begin with, or when we learned them, we were we weren't on the level of sophistication in sophistication in the in the positive way right now that we are right now, and now we have the capacity. You know, you know the famous expression "youth is wasted on the young." Well, so often. Knowledge is wasted on the people who think they understand. <laughs> Later on as you develop, as you develop, you can begin to know what you know. That's the thing. So so why am I bringing that up? Because we're still on the same topic of talking to the king, right? So many people when they pray They're not speaking to God. They're just, they're, I mean, they're praying to the prayer book, maybe? Or they're talking to the prayer book? Or they're, this is a little bit more abstract, but probably more true, they're talking to the words? But they're not actually talking to God. Can you imagine that when you pray, you're actually praying to God? I mean, how many of us, when we knock on the door, the king opens up the door and we ask the king, can you open up the side window so I can crawl into the palace? Meanwhile, we're in a, conver- we're in a conversation with the king. At that moment, we can be talking directly to the king. Now, here's the thing. This is 24-7. This is 24-7. This is an ongoing thing. And, you know, occasionally people would ask me, like, how can I pray better? You know, and they usually ask me that in shul. And and the truth is, is that the, the time, the best time to pray and to learn how to pray is when you're not in shul. When you're just making coffee, when you're walking to your car, that is the time to, because then you can actually have a real conversation with God. What did you do? Um, so, and then when you've actually kind of developed that muscle, because it, it, it takes a bit to develop that muscle, when you develop that muscle of being able to talk directly to God. When you actually get into shul, and you in the Shmoneser, and you say the prayers, you'll have developed that ability to actually speak past the words, speak past the prayer book itself, and actually be in that, in that relationship. And by the way, this is the goal of absolutely everything. And, and you know, the, the, the rabbis have a, a, a fancy word for this. But this is what we're all trying to get to. They call it divacus or divacus kite, and and it's 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 translated as cleaving, right? When you when you're in that active, when you're in that active relationship, and this is how you do it through through talking, through talking. Um. Okay, so so I want to tell you, you know, just absolutely, just continuing, we're continuing on the same subject. But, but there's, a, there's a famous joke that, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if any of you have tried to find parking in, in, in Manhattan, but it's, it's next to impossible. You can, you can drive for 40 minutes and, and not find anything. And um, my holy brother-in-law who's on the call lives on 70th Street, routinely parks on 125th Street, and then takes the bus to his house. Routinely. Can you imagine? And then he told me that the, the spots that he used to use on 125th Street are now all taken. <laughs> so so it's uh it's it's nuts trying to find parking in, in New York. Anyway, so the story goes: someone has a big business meeting, they're driving around, they, they can't be late, they can find parking, they're desperate they're promising god i'll 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 do this i'll do that i'll keep this mitzvah I'll. and then all of a sudden a parking spot opens up right in front of the building that that where his business appointment is and he says never mind god i found a spot <laughs> now i love that story and the reason why i love that story is because it's it, it's it's really it really speaks to everything that we've been saying up until now. You see, let's let's try to analyze what's why did that guy say what he said? So I think a very easy and by the way incorrect answer would be to say, Oh, he's not really religious. He doesn't really believe in God. But let's consider that for a moment. Wasn't he just praying to God? <laughs> of course he believes in God. So wait a second. Now the story actually becomes more complicated. He believes in God and he's praying to God and yet the very thing that he was praying for his prayer was answered and he doesn't believe that it came from God. All right, now we have to <laughs> now we have to like lay this guy down on the psychoanalytic couch. Right? Because, because because, and by the way, this is all of us. This is all of us. We're so knotted up with a K. We're so knotted up in terms of our spirituality and in terms of our relationship with God that this is really commonplace. So you say, well... can God really be that close? This is the part that blows our mind. Can God actually be that close that he just heard what I said and just answered my prayer? And I think that is the part, even for the believing person, that's so difficult. You know, as Reb Shlomo would say all of the time, why are you making God so small? Because it's mind-blowing how infinite God is. And we have to constantly remind ourselves that God is beyond, 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 and at the same time, so intimately close. And when we can balance both of those sides, then we can really begin to be in an authentic relationship with God. Now, with that in mind, with that in mind, I want to tell you one of the one of my favorite teachings from Rabbi Nachman. Okay, so this is coming from the Lukut. Maran, um, and uh, it's lesson number six, just a tiny little part of lesson number six. And I'm just going to kind of give it over in a free form way, in the way that it it speaks to me. But um, but this is this is where you find it. And what Rabbi Nachman says is, he talks about the the angels, and and this is from um, it. This is one of the, the 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 key phrases that that they run and return. Right, ratzovishov. Um, that's how you, that's how you say it in in, uh, in Hebrew, and that's such a key phrase. Like you'll see it all over the Sifre Kodesh, all over the holy books. They're 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 talking about that Hebrew phrase of of running and returning. And years ago, uh, I thought to myself, if that's such a key phrase, I wonder what the gematria of that phrase is. And so I added it up, and believe it or not, this running and returning is six hundred and eleven, which is the gematria of the word Torah. So, in other words, and by the way, I've since seen that gematria. I, Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver has it in his sefer. So, so I wasn't the the first Ruksha Kavanta. I wasn't the first to look at the gematria of that. But but it's, in other words. If that if that phrase "running and returning" is the gematria of the word Torah itself, it shows you how um, not just how universal that spiritual process is, but how um, uh, how completely our lives are saturated with it. So, so let's just talk about it on a number of different levels. Okay, let's just first of all just get the pshat, the, the simple meaning of it. Which is that these angels, they they see, remember, the only one who sees the fullness of God, the entirety of God, is God himself. While angels have a quantumly higher revelation of godliness than we do, nonetheless, angels don't see the totality of God. And in that way, angels are actually more like people than they are like God because they also have a limited view, like we have a limited view, even though their, quote-unquote, limited view compared to ours is absolutely quantumly higher and exalted. So they see the presence of God, not all of God, but they see the presence of God, and, you know, they don't have a negative inclination. They don't have a Yetzirah. So when they see this presence of God, all they want to do is run toward God. They're just flying toward God. But at a certain point, they're going to burn up and absolutely disappear. So when they start to get like too close, then they return. (laughs) Then they run back. And that's the process. Running and returning, running and returning, running and returning, running and returning. Now, that's the simple level of the phrase. But there's also the human component to it. Now, if I were to put it in sort of like an everyday vernacular, what would be the everyday vernacular of that? It would be, well, we have our good days and our bad days. Right? We have our ups and downs. You know, one time, actually it was two separate times. These were like two separate moments where my mind got blown. <laughs> It will sound like very like a very small thing, but it, it made a big impact on me. Which was I don't know what it was, but like like just life was falling apart, something like that. And and someone said, Oh, you're having a bad day. <laughs> and I thought oh, well, that's all it is, I'm just having a bad day. Like, to me, like, everything is in, like, I experience reality in real time. And if the world is falling apart, it seems like the world is falling apart. Like, the idea that that somehow the world is not falling apart and you're just having a bad day, that blew my mind. And then someone said at another point, I don't know if they said it to me or they were just talking about someone else, I don't remember. But they said, oh, yeah, he had a bad year, and I thought, oh, it can work on the year level as well, but that, that that doesn't mean that that is reality. That that's the sum total of all of your existence. It's just, and then Rabbi Green said on another occasion something that I absolutely loved. He was talking about when when things are going wrong. You know, we should only know good times, but you know, there there are these ups and downs, right? The running and returning. They're, they're the down parts also. And he was talking during that period. And he said, you know, let's say a person's having a bad day, but maybe they had something good to eat during that, that day. <laughs> or maybe there was a moment where they went outside and The air felt nice on their skin during that bad day. And he kind of broke it down that even within a bad day, there are sort of like these good moments. And then he said, and how about an hour, bad hour? Maybe there were a few seconds in that hour that weren't so terrible. And it was so liberating. You know, and and you know, he's such a Torah master that um, there was never there was nothing unsympathetic about what he was saying. In other words, he he never had any less sympathy from the person who was going through the struggle. But nonetheless, he was also really speaking honestly and kind of breaking it down a little bit and and showing that even at those hard moments that, that, that God, in his chesed, in his, in his mercy, fills them with, with, with gentler, kinder experiences. So this idea of running and returning is by the angels, but it's also in our lives. We have our ups and downs, and that's true for a year. It's true for a lifetime. It's true for a day. It's even true for an hour. You know, um, the, the Rebbe's talk about it, um, that, you know, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, where you've had a a very spiritual moment followed by a very physical moment, right? Where it's sort of like maybe you, you prayed great, and now you're actually just, like you're pushing people out of the way to get more food at the Kiddush. <laughs> They're like, it's time to eat! <laughs> You know? So it's like, how do those two things go together? Because they're both us. Because they're both us. You know? So so let's go to the next step of what Rabbi Nachman says, because this is really the point that I wanted to get to. So he brings this idea of running and returning. And now he says life-changing words. And again, the reason why I'm telling you all of this is because, you know, all of us are that person in the car looking for that parking space, getting our prayer answered and then somehow not seeing God in the moment. Like, where did that disconnect come from? Like, there was a disconnect. How can we heal that disconnect? Because we've got to heal that disconnect. You know, because the goal is to be conscious and aware, or to use the word of the day, mindful, all of the time, not to disconnect from that. Remember, one of the things that happened when Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, ate from the Tree of Knowledge is their minds and their hearts separated. And that's a lot of our work, is to keep our minds and our hearts together, which is, which is an ongoing process. So here's what Rabbi Nachman says. He says a person has to learn how to be a bucky. A bucky is um, means an expert. You ready for this? A person has to learn how to be an expert in running, and an expert in returning. You see, so many times we're experts in running. Meaning to say that when we're inspired, we absolutely have that close connection with God. When things are going right in our life, we want to attribute it all to God and thank God and everything like that. But when it comes to returning, our expertise falls apart completely. (laughs) We're not experts in returning. We're not experts in maintaining that incredible closeness with God during the challenging times. Or, we're experts in returning, meaning to say, oh God, you know, you just sent me another horrible time in my life. (laughs) We're expert in relating to God when things are horrible, but we're not expert in relating the good times to God. Because it's sort of like, God, if you just if you'll just leave me alone, if you'll just get out of my way, things will go smoothly. You know, they say that um, Bar Kokhba led this rebellion um, on behalf of the Jewish people against the, the Romans. And the we were decimated by the Romans, absolutely decimated. In fact, you know, just in terms of just kind of Jewish history 101 right now, a lot of us... Tend to think that the this long exile that we're in right now began um, when the Romans in the year seventy uh, destroyed the second Holy Temple, the second Beis Amigdash. And spiritually speaking, that's that's correct. That's, that is accurate. But geopolitically, the the Jews remained in Israel for for a period of time afterwards. The the the, the full on exile that we've been in ever since didn't didn't really happen right away so when did it happen it happened when we decided that you know what we're going to get rid of these romans and bar kokhba made this revolution that got absolutely demolished by the romans demolished it was a slaughter it was a slaughter of jewish blood rivers of blood Now the Gomorrah asks the question: Why did Bar Kokhba lose, especially since Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva, thought that he was the highest, the highest, 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 like a candidate for Mashiach? Even. Okay. So they say that what Bar Kokhba said was, "God, just don't help the Romans." In other words, in other words, the implication being, we can handle this. <laughs> As long as you don't help them, we're good. So, so that wasn't a great prayer. That was kind of like a really bad prayer. Because we can't do anything without God. It's not just that he shouldn't strengthen the enemy against us. It's We literally can't lift a finger without God. We're totally dependent on God for absolutely everything. Every breath, every blink of an eye, every movement. And then the question is, if that's the reality, are we treasuring the closeness of that relationship? Right? Because you can react different ways to it. You can deny it and say no i i i can't accept that right that somehow existentially demolishes my dignity as a person <laughs> or you can just say you know it's just like like all there is is just god and i'm just i'm just part of that you know divine flow and and of course i'm completely just one with that. And so why 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 wouldn't it be the case that, that I could do anything without God if I'm just a subset of that awesomeness. So again again we, we get to decide what kind of world we want to live in. Um so so let's go so let's go further. Let's go further into that idea. Um uh and again, if everyone could just uh, mute themselves, that would, that would be great. So let's go further into that idea. What does it mean to be an expert in running and an expert in returning? So, so it means that, you know something, when things are going well, God, thank you so much. I love you so much. This is so amazing. I'm so blessed. You're giving me more so that I can do more for you. And then, when things aren't going well, God, I know you're there. Now, listen to this next step. We're now up to the next step of what Rabbi Nachman teaches, and it's unbelievable. He quotes a he quotes a line from the Tehillim, from the Psalms. It's actually one thirty nine uh, eight, right? If you if you want to look it up, and I'll read it to you in English. It says, if I ascend to heaven, remember, this is, um, you're going to see in these words from David Amelech, this idea of the angels running and returning, okay? So here's what David Amelech says, again, it's Psalm 138 verse, uh, I'm sorry, Psalm 139 verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, you are there, and if I descend to hell, you are here too. So I'm going to read that to you one more time and see if you can hear the subtle difference um, in, in, in the first part and the second part. If you're listening for it, I'm sure you're going to hear it. And then I'll explain it. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. And if I descend to hell, you are here too. Okay, did you hear there and here? Did you hear that? So what's that saying? So if I ascend to heaven... You are there, meaning pointing to this beyond place, because we'll never catch up with God. The angels don't even catch up with God, because God is beyond, 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 beyond. There's always another level, and you're just running, and that's the glory. Heaven isn't boring, by the way. Heaven is not a stagnant place. (laughs) Like, it's just more beyondness, because God is infinite. So there are infinite levels that we and our soul can ascend in heaven. So heaven never gets boring. But it's always, if I ascend to heaven, you are there, pointing upwards. You're always beyond, beyond, and I'm running, 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 running towards you. You know, this idea of being beyond, I I just want to tell you just a favorite story. There was, uh, when I was in high school, or maybe it was college, I I grew up in New York City, there was like this, this uh, club downtown that that I never went to, but but I had a couple of friends who went to it. And it was like, supermodels went to this club, okay, it was like impossible to get into. And it was like, you know, it was like the coolest place in all of New York City for a while. And um, anyway, my friend told me this story. So he said he was there. And um, and he saw there's someone like walking around the club, you know, and they're handing out flyers to just certain people. Right. And now you're already at the most exclusive club in all of New York City. Right now. What are these? These are invitations. What are these invitations to? Right. So so he gets one. He gets one. And it's an invitation to an after party. All right. So he's like, wow. I mean, I'm already in arguably the coolest place in the world right now. What is the after party like? Right. So he goes to the after party, which is in some loft downtown. And that party is starting like at like three, four o'clock in the morning. Right. (laughs) And he goes there. And he tells me, while he's there, he sees someone else handing out invitations. <laughs> and he thought, there's an after, after party. <laughs> and to me, that's kind of like the angels running toward heaven. There's, there's always like another set of invitations for that, that other extra, extra, extra level, right? And it never stops. Okay. But but now the the depths of what Rabbi Nachman is saying in my opinion is really this next part. This that we can understand that's very intuitive. But it's this next part that's life-changing, okay? If I ascend to heaven you are there. I get it. Just beyond and I'm running. I get it. If I descend to hell you are here too. So you know, here is closer than there. There is somewhere else. Here is wherever you are. And that's that's the part where the disconnect in our heart is located, right? I mean, if we're sitting with a an x-ray scan right now of our soul and there's a soul doctor right looking at looking at the x-ray with us he goes right there there's the there's the problem we think when we fall god has abandoned us everything tells us that i made a mistake Now I'm not worthy to be in God's presence anymore. But you know something? We never stop being like fish in water. We never stop being in God's presence. And that's what it means to be an expert in returning. To understand, even after I make a mistake, that God is not only no less there, that he's actually more there. Because, you know, we don't have a bigger fan than God. Because how are we staying alive every moment? Where is every penny in our pocket and in our bank accounts? And where's every penny coming from? God is our doctor. God is keeping us alive. God is our financer. God is bankrolling us. No one has a bigger investment. And then you say, you know, in in the business world, there's a a phrase that you may have heard, which is, do you have any skin in the game? You know, one of the um, reasons why they say the whole United States economy collapsed and, you know, a few years back is because the banks were making all these incredibly risky loans but they they weren't penalized if the loans went south because they took they 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 loaned all of this money to people who didn't have good credit and then they sold the loans to someone else and and they were incentivized to to make as many loans as they possibly could, because they were then selling all of those loans to third parties. So they had the the, the bank, which was enabling this giant looming crisis, literally had no had no downside financially speaking to the havoc they were causing. So that's a that's a classic example of having no skin in the game no skin in the game means you don't care <laughs> having skin in the game means you really care so does God have okay God doesn't have any skin God doesn't have any body God makes bodies right but but how invested is God well can you get more invested that he puts a piece of himself in you? <laughs> That's your soul. God actually puts a piece of himself in you. You can't get more invested than that. And that's a 24 7 commitment. You see, let's be that person in the car again. I'm praying to God, please open up a space. And his space opens. How about this as a reaction? Thank you, God. Thank you, God. And of course you can do it because you have your you have a piece of yourself in my body right now. <laughs> of course you're present. <laughs> of course you're here. You see, we just think of the our souls as the highest aspect of ourselves but we have to think of our souls more as the presence of God in us in the moment because then it's not hard for us to understand how God is paying so close attention in the best way, in the most loving way it would just be the most intuitive thing in the world of course God knows because God is right here okay I fell but God is right here Cause I'm right here, and if I'm right here, God's right here. Because I can't be right here unless I've got a soul, <laughs> and that soul is a piece of God. You know, there's a a classic story one of the one of the great old time stories. So, um, when after after the destruction of the of the. First temple, actually, uh, a large portion of the Jewish community, well, the the whole Jewish community, basically, went to Bavel. That's that would be where Iran and Iraq are. Okay, and we were there until recently. You know, it's amazing this whole Ayatollah kind of situation. You know, in in Iran, uh, the, we were living there continuously for two thousand years or more in, in that one place until recently. I mean there's still a small community there, but I mean it's it's mind boggling what what got uprooted there in terms of Jewish community and, and history. Anyway the since that was where all basically all the Jews in the world were, um the head of 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 the Jewish community in Babel was the head of the Jewish people in the world. And this was known as the, the Geonim, right? Right? That they were who whoever was the gon was the leader of the Jewish people. And um you know, one of, I don't know if I'm pronouncing, pronouncing this word, but one of my favorite words in English, actually, is exile arc. Like a monarch, a monarch rules his own country. An exile ark is the head of the people in the exile. Right? So, so, um, so the Sadiagon, right? This is around the 800s now. The 800s, 900s, um, it it lasted for a period of time. And then there was a migration to Europe. And that's when European Jewry started, you know, and that's when the Rishonim start. So that's around the year 1000. Okay. Just to give you some Jewish history there. But anyway, the Sadiagon, um, was the head of the whole Jewish people and he went to an inn. And he was staying in this inn, and then he's like leaving the inn. And as he walks out, there's like a throng of people. And, you know, they're very excited to see the the leader of the whole Jewish people, you know, the the Holy Sadia Gon is right there. So they like flock to him, and, you know, I'm sure they wanted blessings and, and all sorts of things like this. And the innkeeper... Right, who, who owned the place where the Sadiagon was just saying, is watching this. And, and when the people leave, he runs to the Sadiagon and he begs him for forgiveness. And the Sadiagon says, Why? I, I don't understand. What's the problem? He said, If I knew who you were, I didn't know. If I knew who you were, I would have treated you so much better. And then the Sadia broke down crying. He said, because, you know, this is all of us. Our body is like the innkeeper for our soul. Our soul is a piece of God. We're housing, each one of us is housing an aspect of God right now. If we knew that we were housing God, how much better would we have treated him? How much better would we have been innkeepers? How much better would we have taken every care to make sure that he had all of his needs? So, should I go a little bit further? Because I didn't actually get to what I wanted to talk about, <laughs> and now we're at the, and now we're at the end. Keep going, you're David. Go. Okay. Okay. So, okay. So this this idea that we have to be an expert, like Rabbi Nachman is saying, we have to be an expert in running, and we have to be an expert in returning. You have to know how to talk to yourself during your down times. And you have to realize that God is still there during your down times because God never leaves you. Right? So that's 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 the thing. Now, in terms of this 24-7-ness, because this really is a 24-7 thing, if you want to be serious, you know, I... I I was talking about this, this whole idea of what what I talked about earlier, the the whole idea of the sagula, You knock on the door and the king opens up the door and and you ask, you know, can you open up the side window on the side of the palace so that I can crawl in through the window? (laughs) Meanwhile, there's the king. We have a direct connection. And and this is really our, our fundamental work in life, to keep this direct consciousness, this direct connection going. And at the beginning of this week's Parsha, Parsha's Mishpatim, what we just read, you know, all the letters are holy, but the letter Vav is especially holy. And probably the holiest Vav in the entire Torah is the Vav that begins this week's Parsha. So let me explain, because it taps into everything that we've been talking about up until now, and it's going to go even deeper, okay? So Vav is not just the name of a letter, Vav means and. It's something that joins two things together. And Rashi points out that the Vav at the beginning of Mishpatim is meaning to connect all of the civil laws that are coming, meaning to say, personal injury laws, and, and civil laws, and, and all sorts of things like that, all of them are introduced with this letter Vav in order to connect them back to the spiritual pyrotechnics of the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Now remember, when God gave us the Torah at Mount Sinai, flowers bloomed up around the mountain in the desert, out of nowhere, miraculously, Right? We experienced synesthesia, which means that we saw words and heard colors. Our souls flew out of our bodies, like a fire went on the mountain. It says into the heart of heaven, like there was all these amazing, amazing occurrences that happened. And the vav that begins this next section of the Torah means to connect all of that awesomeness to the question of what happens if you set a fire in your field and the wind blows it and burns your neighbor's crops down. (laughs) Like, it seems, first of all, it's happening decades or hundreds or thousands of years after this earth-shaking revelation at Mount Sinai. But what God is telling us with this vav, with this and, is that it's all one thing. That it's no less mind-blowing, that it's all coming from the same source, that we really never leave Mount Sinai, because we never leave God. Because wherever we go, we're part of God's infinity. See, the problem is, is and this isn't incorrect, but it's not the full truth. We tend to think of things as The finite and the infinite. We're finite, God is infinite. Right? And that's not untrue. But it's deeper than that, because we dwell within the infinite. And so everything is infinite, it's just different stratifications of the infinite. So in other words, we're already in the infinite, but then there are higher levels of the infinite. Infinite. And that's what this Vav is telling us, that we're never leaving the spiritual pyrotechnics, the fireworks of Mount Sinai, because whatever we do, no matter how mundane, is all part of this infinite experience in terms of connecting with God. Now, the Zohar says one of the headquarters of reincarnation is actually in these next in these next few lines. And I just want to touch on some of these concepts. They're beyond me, and and I'll, I'll tell you as much as I can tell you, and then I'll tell you where my understanding stops. Okay, But it's interesting, because it starts talking about Jewish slaves. Now, if you are going to give over a set of laws, right after the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai, most Jewish slaves were people who stole, who couldn't return the the amount that they stole, or including the fine, whatever it was. And so they had to go through a period of indentured servitude to work off their debt. Now, this type of slavery is not the classic slavery that we think of, you know, you know, in in like say the American South or, or or things like that. In fact, it says that the slave had to eat the same quality food as the master. That's that's a shocker, and that if there was only one pillow in the household, the master had to give it to the worker. So again, we have a very different type of environment, but but nonetheless, it, it was servitude. Now, it says for six years, the person will work in servitude, and then in the seventh year, he'll be freed. Now, the Zohar says something absolutely awesome about this. It says that a person will work for six lifetimes, and in the seventh lifetime, you go free. Isn't that interesting? And I had heard that before, but the Zohar goes further. It says, why six and seven? Because seven is Shabbos. Do you see how that works? And in Shabbos, you go free. And seven is not just Shabbos, the seventh day of the week. When God creates the world, he creates it in seven days. But the Ramban brings that that's also talking about the seven days millennial years. In other words, seven groups of 1,000 and that the seventh day stands for the 7,000th era which is the Messianic era which also goes by the name of Yom Shekulo Shabbos. That era is called the day that will be all Shabbos. Now why six lifetimes? Because it correlates, if you know a little bit about the Kabbalistic map of the universe and the way the ten spherot work, you've got the upper three, right? Which are just, that's like hachma, bina, and das. Those are just beyond, beyond, beyond. And then you have the lowest one, that's malchus, that's where we dwell. And then you have these six in between, right? Which are chesed, gevorah, teferet, netzach, hod, yesod. Those are six-sphere And so the Zohar says that these six lifetimes, these six reincarnations are addressing these six-sphere where the negative things that we did damage these places in heaven. And these lifetimes are coming to fix these aspects of what we damaged in heaven. So I asked the person I was learning this with, does that mean we have six lifetimes and then, or seven lifetimes and the seventh we go free? And he said, I'm not sure. Maybe there's a lot more, but there's just six categories we have to fix. And maybe there's many lifetimes to fix those six categories. So that's where our understanding of the Zohar stopped. So you have to, if you want to know, if you want to know exactly whether it's saying six or more lifetimes, you have to ask someone who knows something. But... um at least we scratched the surface of that. And isn't it interesting that it's talking about these six, these six lifetimes, and then we're talking about that vav, which is the number six at the beginning of the Parsha, connecting it all. Because it never ends, and that's the good news. How many of you have read a book, and you're loving the book, and you don't want it to end? How many of you have had a meal and the meal is so good, like every bite of this entree, it's so good. You don't want to eat the last bite. You don't don't want to. But then you have to. But guess what? For us and our life and the tanug, the enjoyment, the bliss, the oneg of our souls, it it never ends. It never ends. It never ends. It never ends. Okay. What follows now are some questions. One of the and things that I'm, I'm always fascinated by is this word midot, um, which in Hebrew means um, sort of like uh, what personality traits a person has, and a person has to have good midot and things like this. Like um, midot actually means measurements. That that's what the word means, and and if you think about it, I really love that because if you think about it, it takes something like You know, like sometimes you'll meet someone and you really like them and then you want to describe them to a friend and you go, you know, he has such a good personality or she has such a good personality. And it's so, it's such a mushy word, you know, it's like, what does that mean? You have a good personality, right? But that's why I like the fact that midot, which is translated as personality, actually means measurements. Because it's not mushy. It's actually fairly exact. In other words, when he gets angry, how angry does he get? Does he get the proper amount of angry or does he get crazy cuckoo angry, (laughs) right? (laughs) Because if he gets crazy cuckoo angry, that's not the right measurement, (laughs) right? So the thing is, is that it, it takes it from the realm of like, how am I supposed to... No, no, no. There is a like... Like, one of the things that I, I, I think is a very useful thing to say to people, you have to make sure that you you say it in the proper time. You don't want to be disrespectful. But but when it's appropriate, you can say to someone, I, I think that you're overreacting. <laughs> and that, if it's said properly, that can help the person. Because the one of the reasons why a person doesn't have good meat out doesn't have good measurements is because they were never really told at, at what or they never learned what is the proper amount to react to such a thing and and so so if they're told that they're overreacting or if a person can tell them ask themselves am I overreacting then they can begin to take this X factor of personality which is you know a very abstract term and start to work with it, in a very sort of disciplined, um, methodical way. So anyway, that's, that's... Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.